See you then. Good morning, church. Thank you, Sam and your team, Joanna on the piano, Alicia singing on the keyboard, Nathan on drums. It's good to have some uh, of uh, the heritage students who worship with us, serve us with their gifts in leading us to the Lord to worship Him today. So thank you. We look forward to joining in song again together as we continue in worship later and then as we come around the Lord's table together. I wish to begin this morning by simply reading the sermon text which introduces a sobering spiritual reality for us, but with the most hopeful outcome that we could imagine. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. I neglected to look at the page number. Maybe it's up there, page 59. Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16 is what we will read together which introduces this sobering reality, but the most hopeful outcome we can imagine. Let me pray for us before we hear God's word again. Oh Lord, please fill our sights. In accordance with what we have just sung together, we pray, Lord, that our hearts, our minds, with eyes of faith, that you would help us to behold who you are for us in Christ. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. And take this word as it is read and preached and planted deep within us by your spirit for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Exodus 17.8 that introduces the sobering reality. From the moment we are saved by Jesus from slavery to sin, from the kingdom of Satan, from the bondage of the fear of death, we are under attack until we reach the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. Everyone who believes in Jesus 
every local church faithful to Jesus has a target on their back. As the reading in Revelation 12 earlier in the service reveals, this is wartime, it is not peacetime. One day we will be the church triumphant. But until that day comes, we are the church militant in a battle that is not against flesh and blood in this new covenant reality. In the meantime, at different points along the way from different quarters, we will find ourselves under attack. Suddenly, unexpectedly, seemingly out of nowhere, as Israel experienced, our chief enemy will direct those under his sway to hound and hassle. A church will be maligned on a local Facebook group for their faithfulness to God's teaching on marriage and sexuality. True story, it happened to Temple Baptist up the street just a couple weeks ago. A Christian artist will have their designs stolen, designs that proclaim God's glory in sending Christ, only to be used to scam and deceive and steal from people who want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. True story. This happened to Allison Burrow over Christmas. A young woman, while in the middle of, of applying to reaching and teaching as a long-term missionary, has to deal with credit card fraud. True story. That happened to Sarah Anderson. A pastor, I know, receives a random text from a non-Christian woman outside of his church, but in the community, with an adulterous invitation to sleep with him. The battle is real, beloved. But if this is all our text this morning would teach us, we would despair. Exodus 17, 18, 8 through 16 shows us in one instance that Revelation 12 is true, that the dragon rages against us because he knows his time is short. But Exodus 17 also shows us in one instance that Revelation 19, 11 is also true. That heaven will one day open and a white horse will appear. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. And he will rule. You see, as the passage we're about to explore together confirms, any fights our enemies start, God will finish. In this conflict... Between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, there is one ultimate victor. It is our Lord Jesus Christ. Any fights our enemies start, God will finish. Victoriously, decisively, ultimately, there is no question about it. And based on this most certain outcome, I exhort us to three commitments. Let us depend upon God for victory. Let us, let us honor God for victory, and let us hope in God for ultimate victory. The first of those will be by far the longest, but we will cover all three. But before we get to those, as a lot seems to come out of nowhere in Exodus 17, some introductions and reintroductions are in order. I believe the passage will be seen in a higher definition by just taking a few moments to do this, and we'll start with the individuals. In 17 verse 9, Joshua is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, his name aptly meaning the Lord is salvation. 
For the Bible's original audience and re-readers of the Bible, Joshua hardly needs an introduction, which is a reason why he's simply mentioned. Now, what we know about him from Scripture is as follows. From our passage, he is clearly a capable leader and obviously has had a hand in training uh, capable men to fight and defend their people. We can also discern from our passage that Moses trusted him. In Exodus 24-13, Joshua is called Moses' assistant. In Exodus 33-11, Joshua goes with Moses to the tent of meeting, where he always speaks to Moses face-to-face. And when Moses leaves, Joshua stays there. In Numbers 13, Joshua is among those who Moses sent to recon the land of Canaan. And along with Caleb, they are the only two who responded faithfully to the rebellious fear of the people of Israel. In Numbers 27, 18, Yahweh commands Moses to take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And after the death of Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua is the successor who leads Israel into the promised land. That's who Joshua is. Here, he begins to prove himself to be the man the rest of Scripture reveals him to be. He's given leadership, he fights, and he receives instructions for beyond this incident, as verse 14 indicates. Now, Moses and his brother Aaron, of course, we know. But her, also just introduced for the first time, we do not. There isn't much to say about him. He was the son of Caleb. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, he leaves her in charge with Aaron. So if anyone has a dispute, they go and talk to those two men. And if he is the same her as mentioned in Exodus 31-2, though there's no way to tell for sure, he would be the grandfather of tabernacle builder Bezalel. These are the good guys, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Hur. But there's also a bad guy, or bad guys, Amalek, or the Amalekites. They require a reintroduction because they don't actually come out of nowhere, even though they suddenly reappear. In Genesis 36, there is Amalek, son of Eliphaz, son of Esau, Jacob's brother. Why is this significant? Because Genesis 36 presents Esau to us not as the seed of the woman from whom the serpent crusher would come, but as the seed of the serpent. Fast forward several hundred years later, and this nomadic people become the first attackers of God's covenant people to destroy them. This is not mere coincidence. Just like the enemy of God and his people who steals, kills, and destroys... Listen to how Moses recaps this event in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18. This is how he replays it. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt and how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. The Amalekites are these godless ruthless punks who descend on God's people, likely on camels, the motorcycle of the ancient Middle East, and they start picking them off one by one. On the heels of the grumbling and their hearts spilling out. On the heels of the quarreling against Moses and the testing of Yahweh, God's people are reminded and we are reminded with them that we have very real enemies without as well as within. The battle with Pharaoh, it is over. 
for the conflict continues all the way to the promised land. And when our enemies attack, not if, when our enemies attack, we need to know as Israel experiences here that any fights our enemies start, God will finish. Victoriously, decisively, definitively. So first and foremost, commitment number one, let us depend on him for victory. Whether we are called to watch and wait as Israel was at the Red Sea, or whether we need to enter the fray as happens here, we absolutely and utterly depend upon God for victory. We don't finish the fights our enemies start. God does, period. That's what verses 8 through 13 teach us. Look again at what Moses says to Joshua. To Joshua Choose for us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Notice all that we're told about the battle is that there was one, that it hung in the balance, and in verse 13, we get the outcome. And some of us maybe wish we had the the blow-by-blow, the the play-by-play, but that's not what we get. What we are gifted is the connection between what happens on the top of the hill and the victory below. We have this epic scene where the prophet of God, he holds high the staff of God so that the people of God can see, and Amalek as well, that Yahweh fights for his people. The simple shepherd's staff that God imbued with his power, the burning bush, was a visible, tangible indication that his power is being employed on behalf of those that he saves. Just think of everything that's been accomplished so far through this instrument that Moses has wielded. It turned from wood to a snake and back again. And then in the court of Pharaoh, it gobbled up the Egyptian magician's serpents. When Moses stretched out his staff, the plagues were inflicted on Egypt. Back in Exodus 14, they're standing by the sea and the Egyptian army is bearing down on them. And Yahweh says to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. A few verses earlier, in Exodus 17, Moses is told to strike the rock with the same staff, and water gushes forth to slake their, thirsty and, uh, uh, their thirst and satisfy their parched throats. And here, seemingly without specific direction, which some criticize, though I would commend, Moses does what he was told to do the last time Israel was under attack. Back at the sea, the Lord said to him, Why do you cry out to me? And he encourages Moses to use the staff. And now here, the next time they're under attack, that's exactly what Moses does. As Golden Gate puts it, I quote, perhaps there are times for consulting God and times for taking action with the power God has given you, end quote. So there Moses stands, above the battle, above Israel, above Amalek, with the staff of God above his own head. And when he holds it up, which everyone could see as the clang of swords and the grunts and groans of battle and the tang of blood fills the air, Israel wins. They prevail. But when his hand drops, 
and the power of God on display for his people is not visible above all, Israel loses ground. I wonder how long it took for that pattern to emerge to their understanding. I wonder when Moses realized that he couldn't afford to actually lower his arm to rest. I wonder when he started switching the staff between his left hand and his right hand. Notice very carefully in verse 11, it says Moses' hand. And then notice very carefully in verse 12 that it says Moses' hands. I wonder how long it took before the strain started to show on his face and for sweat to start beating on his forehead. However long it took, Moses, Aaron, and her eventually realized that they need to step in, which we'll come back to in a moment. But it's because they understand what's being communicated here. As John Curd puts it, I quote, The reason Israel does not prevail when the rod is lowered is to show the people that God contributes more to their victory than do sword and shield. Whatever we think we bring to the table is not what turns the tide of the battle. Young men, young woman, do you think that your energy, your zeal, your strength will be the deciding factor in the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Ask an older man or an older woman, and they will tell you it is not. Older men and older women, do you think that if only people listened to your wisdom and your experience, that that would turn the tide of the godlessness that we contend against in our culture? Perhaps those of us with means think that if only if we had enough money to throw out the problem, that would provide the solution. Or maybe some of us who don't have means think that others who do should give more of that and that would solve our problems. Maybe some of us have aspirations, imagine that, imagining that holding the right positions and having the right influence and gaining the right platform, that would win the day. By all accounts, God uses such means. Joshua has raised men to fight. They've got weapons in their hands. Their hearts are pounding. Their lungs are panting. Their muscles are straining. But the only road to victory is the road of depending utterly upon the Lord. That's what this is about. And we show this best and most by taking up the weapons of warfare that God has given to us in this spiritual battle. Since Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, we don't engage in physical combat for its expansion and defense. Rather, one of the ways that we show our dependence on the Lord for victory is that we pray. That's how we depend on the Lord in this battle. That's why we pray in our services like we do. That's why we pray before our services like we do. That's why Jen leads the kids' men volunteers to pray at 9.30 on a Sunday morning like she does. That's why a component of our life groups is prayer. That's why our elders don't just begin and end their meetings with prayer, but they stop to pray when they're stuck or thankful or for church members who are in the thick of the battle in specific ways by name. That's why there's an open invitation for any to come and pray on Wednesday nights during family night. The next time you come and drop your kids off, 
Stay and pray with those who are faithful to do so. If you're not bringing kids, come anyway. Prayer isn't a mere token. It's not a box to check off. It's our expression of utter dependence upon and confidence in the Lord finishing any battles our enemies start. In prayer, we're asking the Lord to demonstrate His power to bring about outcomes that only He can. And as Moses persevered, so we must also. Another way we show our dependence upon the Lord is by taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why we preach it and read it and teach it and study it and sing it and memorize it and catechize with it as we do. God's Word is living and active. It's Spirit-inspired, and it's what God is pleased to use to pierce the hearts and souls of our kids and our neighbors and our co-workers. Our lack of using these is not only arrogant, proud announcement that we don't need God to battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our lack of using them is dangerous. Our lack of using them is to say to our enemies, come on, injure me, attack me, I'm defenseless. And that will only lead to Exposure and devastating defeat. We cannot do this apart from the Lord. Unless we think using them is a solo effort, please recognize that this dependence upon the Lord for victory is not all of us depending upon Him independently of one another. Depending upon the Lord for victory means interdependence on those the Lord has saved us with. He's not just fighting for me. He's not just fighting for your battle. He's fighting for us. He will finish our battles. We're in this together. And together we express our dependence upon the Lord by interdependence upon His people that He has placed around us. This is a theme that will be revisited in Exodus 18 and the building of the tabernacle, and we see it very clearly here. But the scene that we would prefer in our 21st century Western culture would be Moses up there on his own. Maybe the role we would envision ourselves in would be that of the solo hero prophet. But Moses' weakness is as much on display here as God's power. Moses' dependence on Aaron and her and their contribution, it must not be overlooked. In verse 12, Moses is exhausted. He needs help. I appreciate so much the the, the prayers of humility we've heard from Pastor Sergey and Pastor Kevin this morning. One of our life groups asked this week, how do we hold the hands or support our church leadership? We know we're meant to pray, but in what ways can we really help our pastors and leadership so that God's work can be done? Thank you for the question. One of the ways to help is to recognize our limits by virtue of the fact that we're human as well. We are dependent as you are. Another way is to recognize that the task God calls us to is impossible apart from partnership in the covenant community. Another would be to recognize ways and times and seasons where leadership has been exhausted. And then to offer tangible support to compensate for 
the fatigue. Another would be to understand that we are as dependent upon the Lord as you are. Along with being helped not to underdepend upon the Lord, we are being helped not to overdepend upon our leaders. Moses needed Aaron and her. Joshua and his fighting men needed Moses, Aaron, and her. And the rest of the congregation of Israel needed all of them. Can you imagine if one of them had been absent on this day? If one of them had not, been, not stepped up to fill a role and it was left vacant? Yet as it was, God has saved the people. And he gives each of us a place, each of us gifts, each of us roles to play, and we must play them. Isn't that the beauty of the scene as Aaron and her lug a boulder over for Moses to sit down on? And remember, Moses is no slouch. I know he's 80, but he's like Dave Chapman 80. I don't know if he's quite 80 yet, but if you don't know who Dave Chapman is, he's, he, he's a guy in our congregation who's still landscaping and snow removal. And I wouldn't want to go toe-to-toe with him in a workday because I think he would outdo me. No joke. We're told Moses dies a strong man. But he's not God. Once they get him seated, and you can picture it, Sergey was like, how does this work? And I was like, sit, I told him, sit down. So he's sitting down, and Moses has got his hands above his head, and imagine Aaron and her just finger-locked under his elbow, one on each side, all day, so that Moses' hands are steady. It's the only place in Scripture that the word for faithful and firm and steadfast is used physically. They stand there with him for the whole day till the sun goes down. And with this scene atop the hill, the staff of God above the prophet's head, the people of God assisting the prophet, Joshua and the army of God, that's when they rout the seed of the serpent. As someone captures the wordplay between here and the recap in Deuteronomy, I quote, Joshua made weak and disabled those who preyed upon the weak and disabled. And I can't express to you just how glad I am to know that God will finish fights that such despicable enemies start. And that Jesus said it would be better for someone to go and drown themselves in the sea than to lay a finger on one of my little ones. I am so glad to know because some of you have suffered greatly at the hands of the seed of the serpent. They will come at us. They will come unannounced. They will come unexpectedly. They will come when we are weak. They will come when we're headed in the right direction. They will require a defense. But as we depend upon the Lord, we can absolutely count on their defeat. For every and any fight our enemies start, God will finish. Which brings us to a second commitment. Let us honor him for victory. God deserves the credit. God deserves the praise. Any fights our enemies start, God finishes. So let us honor him for victory. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. 
Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. We'll come back to that theme in verse 16. Verse 15 continues, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner. We honor God for victory in two ways. First, by remembering, by tracking, by commemorating his victories in our lives. The way God commands this is the first instance of a written record being kept in Scripture. Perhaps these words we are reading is a translation of that original book. Perhaps the Pentateuch is the writing project that's being referred to in its infancy here. Now we read about it thousands of years later. Along with this being written, it is to be recited. It is to be heard by the ears of Joshua, because he's going to be the one to lead them into the promised land where they will continue to fight against Amalek. Keeping record and reciting helps us remember. We're we're soon going to be encouraged to do that as a congregation and a memorization challenge that's going to be set before us. We're obeying the Lord in doing so by the public reading and preaching of His Word. We're about to honor the Lord by remembering Christ's victory at the cross as we uh, recite familiar language and verses and as we eat and as we drink. And in addition to the writing and reciting, Moses builds an altar. Maybe he even uses the stone that he sat on as a visible, visible, tangible reminder to everyone who would see it. In this place, there was a time when God kept his covenant promises, he showed his faithfulness, He rescued his people. He fought for them. There are many ways that we can communicate the same to people today as we recognize the Lord delivering us from our enemies, from winning our battles, from helping us overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. One way I thought about how we could do that publicly, it relates to a comment that I hear from people from time to time. That the longer we go on, to live our lives online, the more frequently I hear people say, oh, a social media memory popped up the other day of that amazing steak I had back in January of 2013 or whatever the case might be. Some of them might be anniversaries. Some of those might be a reminder of someone who has died. Some of those might be a picture of your kids or your grandkids or your wedding day or whatever the case might be. Here's my question. Are there any ever of those that draw your attention and others' attention to God's deliverance in your life in some way? Do we say to each other, a social media memory popped up the other day reminding me about this victory that God gave me in my life when I was under attack? When was the last time you shared a story like that at Life Group? Will you share one this week? What about a bedtime story for your little ones that doesn't come from a storybook, from the story of your own life, of God working to deliver you in some way? What about writing into our church office this week to fill the praise email on Wednesday with such accounts? That would be a good idea. Think of what the Lord has saved you from. Think of what he has saved us from, and let it be known publicly, visibly, to honor him for the victory that we have in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the interest of doing that, I mentioned a few scenarios in the introduction this morning. 
So let's honor the Lord for Temple Baptist's faithfulness to hold the line of Scripture. Praise God for Pastor John Stairs and others who serve there with him. With respect to Allison, you know what happened when her art was ripped off or their things were scammed? Many sales came from the scammers' ads, and she's been given a bigger platform to honor Christ than she did before. When Sarah's card was charged with $2,000 of fraudulent activity, she wrote to me and said, I will definitely press on. And praise the Lord, she is now an appointed missionary with reaching and teaching, and by God's grace, we will send her here to the country of Japan to help proclaim the gospel of Christ there. And that pastor, by God's grace, he had no desire to respond to the woman. He told his wife immediately. He told his fellow elders immediately, and they prayed for this woman. How do I know this? Because it was me. It is real. But may the victories of the gospel of Christ be honored and praised in all of the opportunities that we have to give it. A second way we honor God for his victory is by rallying to him. Moses calls the altar he builds, Yahweh is my banner. A week from tonight, two teams, thousands of fans, and millions of viewers will rally around one of two banners during the Super Bowl. They'll rally around a logo, a set of colors, a quarterback, a coach, Fans will find some way to communicate who they rally around. That's an illustration of what Moses is expressing here. Whose side am I on? He's saying, I am on the side of the creator and covenant Lord of heaven and earth. He's my logo. He's my color. He's my battle standard. He's my insignia. He's the banner I rally around. He's the only one who can deliver from enemies that I cannot defeat on my own. What's your rallying point? In Dante's Inferno, he describes a group of people in hell who live for themselves, whose banner read, Me. The scene reads in part, I saw a banner there upon the mist. Circling and circling, it seemed to scorn all pause. So it ran on, and still behind it pressed a never-ending rout of souls in pain. One writer reflects, I quote, these dead ran after a standard to call their own, a banner to give them identity, meaning, and significance. In the inferno, the dead could never catch the banner. The living can't either. To live for self is as a striving after the wind. To live apart from drawing near to God through Christ it is not only ultimately and eternally miserable, it is dangerous. Why? Because you are under the wrath of God that is spoken about here against the Amalekites. You're exposed to his judgment. You are among those who are against him. And friend, has it really been worth it? if you can at least be honest with yourself for a moment, even if it wouldn't be anyone else outside of you, is chasing after the things of this world and all that it promises to offer, has it really satisfied? 
Of course not. That might be the very reason that you came here this morning, because you know it doesn't. So will you not repent of the sin and folly? Will you not switch allegiances to acknowledge your Savior and your Lord, the only one who can deliver you from these enemies of sin and Satan and death? As Moses indicates, we must rally around the Lord as our banner because as verse 16 could be translated, for there is a hand against the throne of Yahweh. Pastor Kevin is right. There's a conflict that we're all embroiled in. There is a, this is a very difficult verse to translate. There's a f- several different options. This is where I'm landing. For there is a hand against the throne of Yahweh. I believe Moses is reflecting here on the Amalekites coming and raising their fist against the rule and reign of Yahweh. And he's saying because of that, that's why he's raising his banner, and because of that, Yahweh will have war from Amalek from generation to generation. They were weakened, yes, they were routed, yes, but they are not ultimately defeated in this moment. So not only does Moses honor the Lord by rallying to him, he is seeking the protection of Yahweh by rallying to him as well. And in this, commitment number three, let us express our hope in him for ultimate victory. Any, any fights or enemies start God will finish not only decisively, but finally. He will bring this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent to a conclusion with him and his people, the eternal victors. We see this in the way that Amalek is spoken about in verses 14 and 16. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. When I introduced this people to you earlier, I didn't tell you all that Scripture reveals about Amalek. In 1 Samuel 5, later, we read the following. Samuel the prophet says to Saul, who has been appointed anointed king, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But Saul didn't finish the job as he was instructed to. He kept alive the king of Amalek and he took spoils from the war. And so Samuel had to step in and he put to death Agag, the Amalekite. Yet, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is still fighting against the Amalekites. And then, we are told later in Esther, hundreds of years later, that Haman, the great enemy of the Jewish people, is an Agagite, an Amalekite. This branch of the seed of the serpent has been relentless in pursuing God's covenant people. What happens to them afterwards is unclear But we do know that this descendant of Esau has much in common with another descendant of Esau, which includes King Herod, who sought to kill Jesus after his birth. Yet up to this point, not Israel, nor Saul, nor David is able to accomplish what the Lord said would happen. 
which points us to the need of a greater prophet who didn't depend upon anyone as Moses did, other than his father in heaven, of course. This points us to the need of a greater king who can truly ensure the outcome of the battle. A king who will appear, Paul writes, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Assurance. That what God says here will continue from one generation to another will ultimately be completed. Any fights are enemies start. All fights are enemies start. God will finish. And those who conquer through, that, through him, Scripture says, will never have their name blotted out of the book of life like Amalek will. And as we have this hope, let us hold it with humility. For by all rights, we deserve the same outcome. The only reason, friends, brothers and sisters, that we have enemies such as these, is because God in His grace brought us to Himself through faith in Jesus and adopted us as sons and daughters. While we were sinners, while we were His enemies, He died for us. And the only reason that we will not be treated the same as Amalek is because we have come under the banner of the cross. We have come under the banner of Christ. And as we come to his table this morning, consider these words from Isaiah 11, verse 10. It says there that in that day, the root of Jesse, you shall stand as a signal, same word, banner for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus is this root of Jesse. And Isaiah describes him the same way Moses does Yahweh. We are under the banner of the crucified one who defeated the enemies of Satan and sin and death through his own. And we could not have done this by or for ourselves. And so as we eat and drink in remembrance of him, let us express our dependence. As we eat and drink in remembrance of him, let us honor his victory. And as we eat and drink in remembrance of him, let us confess our hope in ultimate victory as we proclaim his death until he comes. In this, the banner of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can be certain. Any fights, our enemies start, God will finish including the one that we started when we rebelled against him and our own sin. So come and taste the goodness of the one who made us his friends who were once his enemies. I'm going to invite the music team to come and lead us in singing, and we'll go from there.